Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. All right, you abside top 99 percentilers. I hope everyone's winter holidays have been going well so far, and I hope everybody is staying safe from COVID. We're hitting up colorectal today. This is a two-parter because colorectal is a big and important topic, and both parts are being released concurrently, so make sure you're on the right part. This is part one of the series. Before we begin, just a reminder to be looking out for some new Absite video reviews that we plan on releasing on YouTube in about two weeks. And to complement the new biostatistics outline that we've put in the second edition of our Absite review book, by the way, you can buy that on Amazon if you haven't already, we'll be releasing a new Absite podcast episode on the subject. So stay tuned for that also sometime in the middle of January. Follow us on social media to stay up to date with our endeavors. Now let's drill down into colorectal absite knowledge. All right, uh, colorectal board review. I hope everybody's studying is going well. So let's jump right into it with some high yield anatomy. Uh, so Wu, when thinking about the colon, what parts of the colon are retroperitoneal? That's the ascending colon and the descending colon. Correct. Okay. And another highly testable subject area is the is the blood supply to the colon. So let's just kind of walk through it. Let's start with the SMA. What, Kevin, what branches um, come off the SMA and what parts of the colon do they um, provide blood flow? Yeah. So the SMA uh, provides blood flow to most of the bowel. And then the terminal branch of the SMA um, is actually the ileocolic. Um, and then also uh, more proximal to that coming off the SMA, you have your right and your middle colic. Okay. And uh, what parts of the bowel does the SMA supply? The SMA supplies the entire uh, small bowel and the uh, ascending and uh, part of the transverse colon. Okay. So then let's move down to the IMA. Wu, uh, what are the branches of the IMA? Yeah. So the IMA then uh, leads to the left colic, the sigmoid branches, and the superior rectal artery. Okay. And what parts of the colon does the IMA supply? That's your your distal part of the transverse colon, as well as the uh, descending and sigmoid. Okay, so that SMA, IMA, is there anything that provides a collateral flow between the SMA and IMA? Yes. Uh, so the marginal artery runs along the margin, and this actually allows a collateral flow between the SMA and IMA. And then uh, there's also a more direct um, connection, which is generally called the arc of Riolan, and it's a short, uh, direct connection between the SMA and IMA. It's in the mesentery of the colon. Okay. Uh, what are the watershed areas of the colon, Wu? Yeah, so in your splenic flexure, you have Griffith's point, which is uh, the connection between the SMA and IMA. Uh, and then you have in the rectum, uh, Sudex point, which is where the superior and middle rectal uh, parts connect. Yep, Griffith's and Sudex point. Okay. And, and this is important if they're talking about a patient that was hypotensive, um, and you know where you'd expect to potentially see the areas of infarct. These are the areas um, that will have the, the least blood flow. Yep, especially in kind of like your low flow types type situations. Okay, woo. Let's m keep moving down the track and talk about uh, blood supply to the rectum. Here you have the superior, middle, and inferior rectum. So the superior is supplied by the superior rectal branch of the IMA. Uh, the middle is supplied by the middle rectal branch of the hypogastric or internal iliac artery, and it runs lateral. Uh, it runs in the lateral stalks. 
Uh, and finally, in the inferior portion, you have the inferior rectal artery, which is a branch of the pudendal off the internal iliac. And one thing they often like to ask is, is the venous drainage of the rectum. Uh, so where do those different parts of the rectum drain into? Yeah, so the superior and middle rectal veins drain into the IMV, and that's into the portal circulation, whereas the inferior rectal vein drains into the internal iliac vein into the systemic circulation. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a very important. It's one of those anatomic things that has a, a real clinical uh, relevance when it comes to you start thinking about the the metastasis and spread of tumors. So yeah, very important to know. Superior and middle rectal veins drain into your portal circulation through the IMV, and your inferior rectal vein drains into the internal iliac into your systemic circulation. So yes, very important. And so one thing that you want to think about is when you have a distal rectal cancer uh, that you want to make sure you're doing a good groin uh, evaluation to. Feel uh, palpate nodes because that could be potentially where metastasis are going rather than what we normally think about for colorectal cancer, which would be the liver. Okay. So we're, we're talking, you know, about the colon and the rectum. So where does the colon end and the rectum begin? Will yes. anatomically. So anatomically, the uh, rectum starts where the tinea splay and it starts there and goes until the anal canal. So typically this is about 15 centimeters from the anal verge on rigid proctoscopy. Perfect. Okay. So you said from the tinea splay to the anal canal. So then what defines the anal canal? Yeah. So the anal canal begins at the puborectalis sling and it ends at the squamous mucosa where that blends with the perianal skin. Okay. And then the, another uh, thing we need to define from there is the anal margin. What defines the anal margin? Mm -hmm. So if you take five centimeters radially from that squamous mucocutaneous junction and extend it out laterally, uh, that's the anal margin. Okay. And so just keep these in mind. These are be going to become important as we go on to talk about different uh, colorectal and uh, anal uh, tumors uh, a little bit later in this podcast. If only we could uh, link a video of Dr. Steele doing the little man walking uh, up the anus um, to demonstrate all the areas, it would uh, be quite helpful. Yeah, maybe that's a separate podcast where we have uh, Steele talk about his little man walking through the anal canal, but uh, that's, that's a story for another day. Um, okay, so let's move on to some pathology. So very, very common are anal fissures. Everybody, every general surgeon is going to see them in their practice. So Wu, uh, what are some basics when it comes to anal fissures? Yeah, so 90% of these are located within the posterior midline. Uh, females can have anterior fissures in about 25% of cases, but again, think posterior midline is the most common. Uh, the first line treatment for these is is medical, non-operative management. Uh, you start with celium or other bulking agents with sitz baths, uh, plus or minus a topical anesthetic. Uh, if that fails, you can add on a topical nitrate, which can be helpful, but uh, often is accompanied by side effects like headaches, which are not tolerated very well. Uh, in that case, you can try a topical calcium channel blocker, which has a similar efficacy to topical nitrates, but with fewer side effects. Yep. So perfect. So your you know initial management is bulking, uh, bulking the stool, sits baths, topical anesthetics, your, your nitrates or your calcium channel blockers. And, and what's another, uh, with all these things, we always start with the least invasive and go to more invasive. What's the next step after that? The next step would be Botox injection, which has a modest healing rate for those that fail with topical therapy. Okay. Uh, Kevin, what about uh, surgical therapy for anal fissure? What are our options? Right. Uh, so you can do the, the classic is the lateral internal sphincterotomy. Uh, so this has a very high efficacy rate, um, much higher than non-operative methods. However, the the big risk of this is, is, a, is a large one is fecal incontinence. Um, so I've actually 
I guess it's not as absolutely pertinent, but a lot of times they'll try Botox first and see if it helps. And if they are going to develop fecal incontinence with the Botox injections, if they do, that does not make them a candidate for the sphincterotomy. But then there's also the anocutaneous flap. Um, this is where you basically make a flap and cover the uh, fissure. And with this, um, it has inferior healing rates, but the incidence of fecal seepage and continence is, is very low. And this can uh, be performed in addition to other procedures such as the uh, Botox injections or the sphincterotomy. Yep. So, yeah, the, your lateral internal sphincterotomy, it, it has high efficacy rates. It's a very small risk of fecal incontinence. But like as, as you mentioned, you want to be sure that you definitely evaluate the patient's um, uh, continence before the operation. So women with childbearing age who have had prior obstetrical injuries, um, ear, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, or any history of sphincter dysfunction incontinence would make uh, would be a contraindication to doing that procedure. And the anocutaneous flap is often added in addition to some of these other some of these other procedures. Okay, so moving on from there, let's go to another very common uh, colorectal uh, pathology, which is the anal rectal abscess or the fistula in ano. We'll start with uh, anal rectal abscesses. So, woo, uh, abscesses are defined really by the anatomic space that they occupy. So what are our different classifications of anal rectal abscesses? Yeah, you can think of these as falling into five different spaces. There's the perianal space, the ischiorectal space, intersphincteric space, supralevator space and the submucosal space. Yeah, so this is you really have to have kind of a, a intimate knowledge of the anatomy. Um, there's a good clinics, uh, surgical clinics of North America article I would point everybody to that really lays out anal rectal anatomy. Um, it's a very thorough, very great article. If you haven't read it, go read it. It makes all understanding all these disease processes much easier. You just kind of have to picture the anatomic location. So uh, not something we're going to be able to convey over an audio format, but you just understand that you need to have a good knowledge of the, the different anatomic locations or the anatomic spaces in the uh, for anal rectal anatomy. So yeah, perfect. Those are the, your different areas for anal rectal abscesses. Um, we all know that uh, if there's pus, it must be drained. So what are the tr- pr- what is the primary treatment uh, for um, anal rectal abscesses? The primary treatment is going to be surgical drainage. Uh, and again, think about those spaces. If you have an abscess in the superficial uh, perianal or ischiorectal spaces, then external IND will suffice. However, if you have a deeper abscess, which is occupying the inner sphincteric or supralevator spaces, then you may need to do internal transanal drainage. Uh, okay, so Kevin, uh, these patients that you drain these anal rectal abscesses on, do they need antibiotics? The vast majority of them do not. But if patient has significant cellulitis, if they have systemic signs of infection, such as fevers and chills, or they have some underlying immunosuppression that they're on, you'd want to put them on antibiotics. Okay, so will you do you do a drainage of a of a perirectal abscess, and and later the patient comes back to you and, and they say they have a little fecal seepage from a from a wound um, just outside of their their anus. They're wondering if you did something wrong when you drained your abscess. Did you cause an iatrogenic injury? What's that all about? Uh, yeah, you actually think about a fistula in ano about a third of these patients post abscess will develop in a fistula yeah it's always important to warn the patients if they present with an anorectal abscess that about a third with 33% or 30% of patients will go on to develop fistula in ano because uh, you can imagine that's quite distressing to them when that does occur so uh, let's talk about fistula in ano so will you went over the different anatomical locations of abscesses again 
need to know the anatomy. What are the different, uh, how do we define fistulas? Yeah, so I think of this as uh, there are there are five again. The fifth is still submucosal, but the other four are in relation to the sphincter muscle. So you can have an intersphincteric, a transphincteric, supra-sphincteric, or an extra-sphincteric fistula in anal. Um, yep, and so... Uh, Treatment of these can be challenging, and it depends a lot on the individual patient and on, again, it depends heavily on the anatomy. So, But in general, Kevin, what are some principles for uh, treatment of fistula and anal? Right. And, and for the absite, they're not going to get too crazy about this, but for a superficial, simple fistula uh, with minimal or no sphincter involvement, uh, you can just do an incision um, a, a, open the tract up essentially and whether if it's a little bit of sphincter be a little bit of a sphincterotomy so fistulotomy is okay in these patients if it has minimal sphincter involvement or just submucosal okay what about if it involves more of the sphincter let's say it involves um, 25% of the sphincter so we're generally pretty conservative on these patients we'll generally just drain the abscess if there is one still and then just place a seton okay what is this what's a seton what does it do so generally, it's just a vessel loop uh, that we put in there and, and tie to itself. Um, so you have a loop that is uh, in there. And what that causes is it has the, the track allows it to fibrose. And this is the goal is to convert a high fistula to a low fistula and prepare the tract for later procedures. A lot of times it'll actually uh, resolve a lot of their symptoms because there's it, it fibrosis and doesn't have the same inflammatory state that it did before. Right. It seems a little counterintuitive. You want to keep that tract open so that it's draining, control the inflammation, uh, have a foreign body reaction and allow fibrosis of the tract. And like you said, the goal is to convert that high sphincter to a low sphincter, which can then be treated um, with some uh, a procedure. What's So what's a, a good procedure um, other than fistulotomy? What's another option? Yeah. One that is coming in vogue and I think is uh, pertinent on the ab site now is the lift procedure, the ligation of intersphincteric tract is a good option for fistulas not amenable to simple fistulotomy. Yep. And that's again, after you've induced that, you, you need that fibrosis, you need that tract to mature, you need the inflammation, to, you need to control the inflammation. Uh, but yeah, that's a great, the lift. Ligation for inter- intersphincteric tract. Um, woo. We hear a lot about these fistula plugs, fibrin glue, um, all those different options. What, what do you think about those? Yeah, we'd actually steer you away from answering whether it's a fistula plug or a fibrin glue on the boards or the abscite. Right. High recurrence rates. They can cause some complications, uh, pain, um, infection. It's a little bit controversial. There are people out there using it, but for the boards, I would stick with fistulotomy if it involves minimal, if it has minimal sphincter involvement, placing cetons for the higher uh, fistulas and your lift procedure. And then one other procedure is the anorectal advancement flap. This is also a reasonable choice. But all of these procedures will be preceded by a seton. So it's really important that if it involves significant sphincter muscle, you choose a seton first. Yeah, and a lot of people are are, are adding the uh, advancement flap to procedures. So you perform a lift with the advancement flap um, would be a good option. Okay, let's move right into diverticulitis. Uh, so, Wu, what are the, what's the Hinchy classification for diverticulitis? So... The Hinchy classification has one, two, three, and four. Uh, class one is a pericolic abscess. Class two is a pelvic abscess. Class three is uh, purulent peritonitis. And class four is feculent peritonitis. 
Yeah, that's the the classic, you know, Hinchy classification that uh, is probably not so important to know for the boards, but it's important to have that the kind of those different um, severities in your mind when thinking about treatment and it's certainly uh, pimpable on uh, rounds. Uh, not likely to ask you the Hinchy classification on the boards, but uh, Kevin, what constitutes complicated diverticulitis? Right. And this is the important differentiation uh, in diverticulitis. So if you have a perforation, if you have an abscess, you have fistula, you have an obstruction or stricture. Uh, these are generally the cases of the, the complicated diverticulitis is when surgery gets involved. Yep. Again, perforation, abscess, fistula, obstruction, stricture, complicated disease. What about if you just have a large phlegmon or maybe you have a little extra luminal gas on your CT scan? Is, is that considered complicated disease? Uh, it, it is not. Most of these will still resolve with antibiotics. And Jason, just for our uh, more junior listeners out there, can you describe what a phlegmon is? I've never, when I was earlier in my years, had a hard time understanding that. Sure. So phlegmon on a CT scan is, is basically just an area where you see a lot of inflammation. So you see kind of a contained area of a lot of inflammation, not necessarily an abscess and not a big fluid collection, but it's it's a, a ball of inflamed tissue that you can see on the CT scan. Okay, so let's move on to some uh, principles for treatment. So we, let's say you have uh, a patient who presents with uh, uncomplicated diverticulitis, who's a clinically stable, uh, reliable patient, um, and uh, they're, they tell you that they're uh, able to drink liquids okay. How do you want to treat that patient? So this patient um, might be amenable to outpatient treatment with oral antibiotics. Uh, you want to make sure you cover gram positive and gram negatives. Uh, so something like Augmentin or Levoflagyl would be a good option. Okay. So let, and then let's step it up a little bit. So let's say a patient presents with complicated disease. Um, so maybe they have an abscess um, uh, on their CT scan and they're really not tolerating a whole lot of uh, PO intake. And these patients should be admitted and uh, started on IV hydration and uh, IV antibiotics such as Zosin or Levoflagyl. Yep. And then we'll, we'll move into a little bit more of uh, some other treatments. Those patients may require percutaneous uh, drainage or even an operation, but we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, uh, Kevin, so what do you do for your unstable patient who has diffuse peritonitis? So this patient clearly needs to go to the operating room. In that, and in that case, you do a sigmoidectomy, likely with a Hartman's procedure, where you remove the sigmoid, you divide the rectum and leave the rectum stump, rectal stump in the pelvis and bring up an enclostomy. Yeah, I think on the boards, it's the safest answer for somebody with diffuse peritonitis, um, you know, your Hinchy 3 or Hinchy 4. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of literature out there that supports primary anastomosis in select patients, even with Hinchy 3, uh, Hinchy 4. But I think for the ab site, I th in that situation, I think I would still um, answer a Hartman's procedure. What do you guys think? And, and as we've discussed, they probably are not going to make you choose between the two. It's a, it's a, it's a complicated scenario. And I think uh, if you ask Dr. Steele or any of the other colorectal surgeons, they'd say the answer nowadays is primary anastomosis with diverting loop. Um, but I think on the ab site, um, I would still do Hartman's. Yeah, it, it, it would depend on the individual scenario. But certainly if, if they give you a, an older patient who's unstable, I, I, I still think that's the safest answer. Um, and in these board scenarios, you always want to go with the safest answer. Uh, we're not saying in real life the primary anastomosis doesn't happen or that that's wrong. But on the boards, I would, I would probably do, still do the Hartman's. Um, Wu, what about, you hear a lot about laparoscopic lavage. I would not do a laparoscopic lavage on a test right now. Uh, if you're operating in the urgent or emergent setting, you really should do a resection. 
Yeah. Stay away from laparoscopic lavage on the boards. A lot of controversy, a lot of uh, controversy concerning the literature for laparoscopic lavage. So I would not do that on the boards. Um, what about a stable? So we did the easy one. The patient who shows up unstable, diffuse peritonitis. Okay, that's easy. You go to the operating room. What about a stable patient who has an abscess? How do you manage that patient? Uh, here, I would think about the size of the abscess. Uh, generally, about three centimeters is a good cutoff. Uh, if the abscess is less than three centimeters, these generally resolve with antibiotics. Uh, but anything larger than three centimeters should be considered for percutaneous drainage. Yeah, in reality, you're going to talk to your interventional radiologist and see if they can get there, if they think they have a good target. But um, and uh, but generally, yeah, I think three centimeters is a good cutoff. Less than three centimeters is a good chance that's going to resolve with antibiotics alone. Greater than three centimeters, uh, you should think about uh, percutaneous drainage. Uh, so Kevin, what about, let's say you have a patient who has a five centimeter abscess, they're stable. Uh, you talk to your interventional radiologist, they're like, I just don't have a good window. I can't get there. Uh, what do you want to think about in that situation? So this may be one of the few situations that you consider a laparoscopic drain placement. Yeah. So yeah, laparoscopic, uh, drain placement would be the answer there. Um, so the goal with all of these is to kind of, you know, let the acute phase, the acute inflammation uh, resolve so that the patient can then undergo an elective single stage colectomy at a later date um, and maybe avoid that ostomy. Uh, so, Wu, let's say you have a patient who has a, a single episode of uncomplicated diverticulitis seen on a CT scan. You're able to su successfully treat them non-operatively with antibiotics. And then so what's the next step? So about six weeks following resolution, I would uh, take this patient for a colonoscopy. Uh, you want to rule out any underlying neoplasm or any ischemia or inflammatory bowel disease. Yep, that's exactly right. So uh, these patients aren't done just because they get better. So every, all these patients, uh, provided that they haven't just had a recent colonoscopy, need a colonoscopy, you typically wait about six weeks for all that inflammation to go down. And like you said, you want to rule out the big thing would be a, a, a colon cancer, perforated colon cancer, um, and not just simply diverticulitis, but also ischemia, inflammatory bowel disease. Kevin, when should you recommend these patients undergo uh, sigmoid colectomy? <laughs> Right. This is a difficult question and it has changed over the past 10 years. It used to be based on the number of episodes and the age of the patient. Um, however, we now know that the first episode tends to be the worst and that multiple uncomplicated episodes uh, do not necessarily increase the risk of needing an emergent colectomy or a stoma, which we previously thought that if you're having multiple episodes, you'd kind of scare, tell the patient they have a risk of getting a stoma if they get another episode of this. And that would kind of push patients towards colectomy. In my personal experience, it's been patients that uh, have kind of smoldering diverticulitis that they or they have a stricture from their diverticulitis are kind of the most um, common cases and when we're doing elective sigmoid colectomies um, but you know if it's a younger patient in their 30s or something and they're already getting diverticulitis this might be a patient or you know we've had police officers and things like that that don't and soldiers that don't want to deal with this and worry about this and so it's really a discussion of how does this affect your lifestyle? Are you okay if you have to come in and get antibiotics again? Should this happen again? Or is that too concerning for you? So those are generally how I, I think of it. Yeah, I think you're right there. I think the, the answer used to be pretty easy. So like I said, it used to be based, there was criteria based on the patient's age, the number of episodes, but now the decision for elective colectomy is, is highly individualized. So it does involve, you know, a conversation with the patient, consideration of the risk versus benefits of surgical intervention. Like you said, so uh, certainly anything, things like suspicion for a neoplasm, um, if they have chronic symptoms, that smoldering disease, that would 
lean you in the direction of intervening. Um, but you have to have a conversation with the patient and, and talk about the effect of the diverticulitis on their lifestyle and consider the comorbidities and general health of the, of the patient. So uh, it's, it's a much harder question than it used to be. Uh, so it's unlikely to be uh, a question um, that they'll, they'll give you that kind of gray area scenario. It's going to be obvious on, on the exam. Uh, what about for compli- that's for uncomplicated disease. What about for complicated uh, diverticulitis? When do those patients need a surgery? Yeah, for all these patients after they've recovered from the complicated episode of diverticulitis, uh, they should be uh, offered a, a elective colectomy. Yeah, so your patient that you comes in and they have an abscess and you per- successfully percutaneous drain it, uh, those patients uh, should be offered an elective colectomy after they recover from their episode of diverticulitis. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about uh, C. diff infections, Clostridium difficile infection. Uh, woo, what is this? So C. diff is a, an anaerobic gram-positive rod. It's a common cause of uh, infection in the hospital setting, uh, especially following antibiotic administration. Okay. So, yeah, I've seen it more and more common um, as with widespread use of antibiotics. But so what are your principles and of medical management for C. diff infections? Uh, so for medical management, you'd start with uh, metronidazole and vancomycin. Uh, th- these are the mainstays of medical treatment. Uh, as far as the dosing goes, uh, for metronidazole, you could do 500 milligrams TID oral if the patient can tolerate it. Uh, and for vancomycin, this should be also given orally as, as opposed to an IV administration because of the way, uh, it, it needs to penetrate into the gut. Uh, so for vancomycin, you can do 125 to 500 milligrams QID. Uh, you can generally treat with both uh, flagell and vanc for 10 to 14 days. Uh, if PO is not a good option, vanc enemas can also be administered. And some recommend metronidazole for mild to moderate disease and to reserve vancomycin for the more severe disease. But really, there's not enough evidence to suggest one over the other. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of a common question. They'll, they'll give you somebody with C. diff and they'll ask you how you want to treat them. Um, and they'll list all those options, kind of flagell, vanc, oral and IV. Um, what would be the first one you would go for on the test, do you think? Flagell. Yeah, I think if the patient's tolerant PO, that would be my first choice as well, is oral, uh, is, unless it's a severe disease, um, oral metrodinazole, um, and then kind of step up from there. Uh, what's a newer... Um, a new a newer antibiotic out there that people might see. Yeah, fidaxomycin is an oral macrolide. It's a newer antibiotic with activity against C. diff. Uh, these are mostly used for resistant strains. Yeah, and that usually is after infectious disease gets involved and is probably not yet the answer on the boards. Uh, so, Kevin, uh, what about patients with uh, a refractory C. diff infection? Yeah, this is very pertinent uh, for the boards, I believe. And this is when you would consider uh, a fecal transplant. Yep. Fecal transplant for refractory uh, C. diff. Uh, Where does surgery come into play for C. diff? Surgery, thankfully, is uh, only for patients that fail to respond to medical therapy. Uh, So like most surgical indications, it's if they have a perforation or generalized peritonitis, uh, sometimes they can go into multi-system organ failure um, and have a, you know, a toxic megacolon picture. And these would be um, situations in which they would need an emergent subtotal colectomy. Um, so those are generally the, the time you want to think about it. 
Yeah. So in that situation with that patient with multi-system organ failure, you've, you've waited too long. The decision to operate on these patients is difficult, but if you, if you wait that long, um, uh, that's a very ominous sign, as you say. So in those patients, you should consider early operative intervention in patients who are requiring vasopressors or who have signs of uh, sepsis with a C. diff infection. Um, and uh, you mentioned it, but the procedure of choice. So it'd be a subtotal colectomy, which what we mean by that is a total abdominal colectomy. You leave the rectum in place and you do an end ileostomy. Yep. That would be the, that would be the answer on the test. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you may, people out there may have heard of the, the diverting, bringing up a diverting loop and doing colonical lavage. Yeah, that's certainly uh, an option and it's being done in some institutions uh, and it, it has shown uh, promise and it's a lot mo- less morbid than a subtotal colectomy and endoleostomy, but I, I don't think that is uh, pertinent for that. Yeah, that's really at select institutions doing that that DLI and the colonical lavage with antigrade vancomycin enemas. Um, that is a surgical option. There is some literature out on that, but uh, that hasn't quite that hasn't worked its way into be the answer for the for the boards. Okay, woo. So let's move on from C. diff and let's start talking about uh, some of the different uh, colonic volvuluses. There's a couple different kinds. Uh, just tell us the, the quick hits on that. Yeah, so there's a, a sigmoid volvulus as well as a sequel volvulus. Uh, so let's start with the sigmoid volvulus. So radiographically, look for a bent inner tube sign. The apex of that inner tube is going to point towards the right upper quadrant. Um, in On a contrast-enhanced CT, you can confirm the diagnosis as well as uh, it, it's helpful to assess the colonic viability. Uh, if on this CT scan you see no colonic ischemia or perforation, the first step is endoscopic detorsion. So you're going to leave a decompression tube in place for about one to three days. Uh, there's a high long-term recurrence rate after the initial endoscopic decompression. So you should consider these patients for for a sigmoid colectomy during the index admission uh, in appropriate patients. Yep. So again, as you said, that bent inner tube sign. So uh, you, you see a big dilated colon with the, with the uh, apex pointing to the right upper quadrant. You get your CT, confirms. The first step in a stable patient is going to be endoscopic detorsion. Um, but as you say, there's a high recurrence rate with that. So those patients should be considered for uh, elective sigmoid colectomy. Um, what about if, let's say, the patient perforates and you're operating emergency, what's your, what's your procedure going to be? Uh, here, I think the safe procedure to do would be the open sigmoidectomy with end colostomy. So the Hartman's procedure would be the safe answer. Okay. And how about if you're able to successfully detours them, when do you want to operate them on them and what procedure do you want to do? So this, it'd be ideal to operate in a semi-elective setting and, and uh, the answer would be a sigmoid colectomy with a primary anastomosis. Okay, Kevin, what about a sequel volvulus? That's a little bit different. What do you want to do with these patients? Right. And so this is a, I think, a 100% sensitivity to have a sigmoid or sequel volvulus on the ab site. So I would definitely go look at these images and know this well. Every year I've seen this. Uh, so a sequel volvulus, very different. Uh, this is a patient you do not want to do endoscopic reduction. Uh, rarely successful and high recurrence. So these patients need to go directly to the operating room. What does this look like on uh, imaging? 
So this will be the coffee bean sign generally pointing uh, towards the left upper quadrant. Right. So make sure you know how to distinguish between these two on a plain radiograph because, uh, as Kevin said, there's a high likelihood that you'll see this radiograph on test. And, and I think there's a, a good clinical point that's actually you actually see in, in practice that's different. The sigmoid volvulus, you're generally going to have your nursing home patient that's either on antipsychotics or has long-term constipation and obstipation uh, that comes in with a distended belly and they can't talk to you or tell you anything that's wrong with them. Whereas the sequel volvulus can be in kind of really anyone of any age. Okay. Uh, so you talked about operating and you may need to do a resection. Talk to me the pros and cons about resection versus performing a, a, a pexy of the volvulus. Yeah, it, it's debatable. Um, you know, each are, are possible and have been shown to be adequate, but on the boards, I would do a resection. So a ileocecectomy or right hemicolectomy would be the correct answer for this. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So on the boards, I'd probably answer a resection with a primary anastomosis for a sequel volvulus uh, and stay away from the pexies. Definitely don't. They'll give you some options like secostomy, endoscopic detorsion for sequel volvulus, um, or operative detorsion alone without doing anything, a pexy or resection. Those are definitely the wrong answers. But for, for me, I think the answer would be a resection with a primary anastomosis. And remember, if you're doing a right colectomy, even in emergent situations, you can always generally do a primary anastomosis and you do not need to divert. Yeah. Yeah. For right-sided uh, primary anastomosis without diversion would be uh, would be a, a pretty safe answer. Okay. So let's move on uh, to uh, something called Ogilvy's syndrome. So uh, Kevin, what is Ogilvy's? So yeah, this is a, a, a pseudo obstruction of the colon, um, which you know, it means you're going to have a dilated colon that's concerning that there is an obstruction, but the, the workup will demonstrate that there is no obstruction. Uh, this is generally seen, I think the most common scenario you'll see, especially in the boards, is they'll have a patient that had spine surgery or knee surgery. And then they, uh, you know, two days after surgery, they start having uh, abdominal pain and bloating and they get an x-ray and their colon is 10 centimeters and their cecum is maybe 12 or 13. Uh, so these are, that that's who you'll see this patient. And you also see it frequently in trauma, patients with spinal fractures. Um, and then uh, in patients that have electrolyte abnormalities or on high doses of opiates are at higher risk for this. Great. So Wu, with Ogilvy's, uh, what are some risk factors for perforation? Yeah, the most significant risk factors would be a cecum that's massively dilated to over 12 centimeters or a duration greater than six days. Yep, exactly. Uh, specific, especially that cecum greater than 12 centimeters. That that's uh, that's definitely increases your risk of that patient perforating. So, Kevin, what's the, some initial management for Ogilvy's? Uh, let's say there's no signs of ischemia and your cecum is uh, 10 centimeters. Right. So for these patients, you're going to do supportive therapy, generally uh, replace their electrolytes, minimize their opiates, uh, fluid resuscitate um, would be the, the first thing I would do. Additionally, you want to make sure you're stopping anticholinergic medications, treat any infection, and definitely have the patients on bowel rest and consider uh, nasogastric decompression. Right. Yep. For those patients, you want to just kind of give them bowel rest, correct, try and identify what's causing the underlying uh, pathology, electrolytes, fluid resuscitation, all the things you said, and, and try and reverse that. Um, but let's say they don't respond to that. Right. So... If they don't respond to that and you have ruled out a distal obstruction with generally a colonoscopy or a flexible sigmoidoscopy, uh, you can consider neostigmine uh, to help decompress them. 
Yep. So if they don't respond to your, your supportive care, that would be the next uh, neostigmine. As you said, it's very, very, very important to make sure this is a pseudo obstruction and not an obstruction. So you do have to rule out a distal obstruction before you do that. What's the side effect of neostigmine? Uh, bradycardia. This is why you want to give neostigmine in a monitored setting. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, Kevin, let's you try that. They don't even re- they don't respond to the neostigmine. What's the answer on the boards? Uh, endoscopic decompression. Yeah. So either they don't respond to the neostigmine or for a cardiac reason, the neostigmine is contraindicated endoscopic decompression. Um, let's say they have a massively dilated, their cecum is 16 centimeters. Uh, and there you see evidence of uh, ischemia or even if they have a perforation, how do you manage that patient? So in this patient, you're going to take them to the operating room uh, and resect. Yeah, and the decision whether or not to do an ostomy versus primary anastomosis, plus or minus diversion, that's really made on a case by case basis, and unlikely to get that detailed into the into the into a board's answer. But yeah, obviously, as with anything in the colon, ischemia perforation you need to resect that. Okay, so our next topic is rectal prolapse. So, woo, what is rectal prolapse, and who does it affect? So rectal prolapse is a full thickness intersusception of the rectal wall. Uh, there's a higher incidence of this in elderly females, the developmentally delayed, and psychiatric patients with multiple medications. Yeah, so when they describe this to you, how do you distinguish rectal prolapse from prolapse temeroids? So make sure you see all those concentric rings indicating a full thickness intersusception. Uh, and how do you go about treating this? What are some principles of surgical therapy for rectal prolapse? So first, you want to eliminate the prolapse through either resection or restoration of the normal anatomy. Uh, You want to correct any associated functional abnormalities. And finally, you want to avoid creation of de novo bowel dysfunction. Good. Yeah, those are your goals of therapy. Uh, Kevin, how might you see this pop up on on the boards? Yeah, I think a good way to ask this is they may give you a a severe... um, rectal prolapse image and it could actually just be hemorrhoids so it's important to know the difference between severe hemorrhoids and rectal prolapse but if you identify that it is truly rectal prolapse i think the answer on the test will initially be just to reduce it for the time being and schedule them for an elective procedure Yep. And so, like I said, it, it, surgical intervention is really the mainstay of treatment for rectal uh, prolapse. Um, how do you want it? There's a couple different options. Um, so how do you want to go about uh, sorting out your surgical approach? Right. It really depends on the patient. If you have a young patient um, who has laxity um, due to previous obstetric operations, et cetera, um, these are patients you want to do a transabdominal rectal fixation, like with a rectopexy. Um Open versus laparoscopic doesn't matter, um, but these are the patients you need to do rectopexy on. Um, but if it's a patient that has very poor risk, a lot of these, uh, the majority of the patients I've seen with this have been 80, 90 year old nursing home patients uh, that these are the patients you want to consider the perineal rectosigmoidectomy. Yep. So ideally, some type of uh, you know transabdominal pexy is 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 the preferred procedure because of the lowest rec- lower recurrence rates. Um, but in those really old frail patients who may not be able to tolerate an abdominal surgery, the perineal approach is acceptable. It has a lower morbidity but a higher recurrence rate, so it's a less durable repair. Like I said, open versus laparoscopic. It's going to depend on surgical preference. Uh, they have pretty equivalent recurrence rates. Uh, there is improved morbidity with laparoscopic approach. But uh, again, that's going to depend on the surgeon uh, experience, whether an open or laparoscopic approach is used. But the rectopexy is really the key component of that procedure. Um, how do you decide whether or not you want to do a, a resection rect- a resection with the rectopexy or a sigmoid resection, Wu? 
Yeah, so if the patient has constipation, uh, then you would consider doing a sigmoid resection at the time of the rectopexy. Perfect. Okay, well, I think we're going to take a break. We're going to break this up into two sections because it's so long. But before we break, let's do a, a little quick hit rapid fire segment. So, Wu, what's the main energy source for colonocytes? That would be short chain fatty acids like butyrate. Yep, that's one of those simple ones. You just got to know. You don't want to get that one wrong. Uh, you got to pick up those points where you can. Uh, Kevin, so let's say you have a patient with a sigmoid volvulus uh, seen on CT scan. You do an endoscopy and the mucosa appears a little dusky and there's some ulceration. What's What do you do in that situation? On that, I would uh, abort the endoscopy and take the patient to the OR for an urgent sigmoid resection. Do not attempt endoscopic detorsion if there are signs of colonic ischemia. Perfect. You see signs of colonic ischemia on your endoscopy when you're going to detours. You stop. You take them to the operating room. You do a resection. Uh, woo. So uh, with a patient with an uh, an anal fissure, you mentioned before that 90% of these are in the posterior midline. Let's say you see one lateral or let's say you see multiple anal fissures. What do you think about here, you should think about Crohn's disease. Um, that's the major tip-off, but you can also get this with HIV, syphilis, or TB. Yep, so lateral anal fissures or multiple anal fissures. The big one you should think about is Crohn's, as you say. Uh, Kevin, so you're doing an X-LAP with a planned total abdominal colectomy on a patient who has uh, C. diff colitis, refractory to medical management, and has, has some signs of sepsis. When you, However, when you enter the abdomen, the entire colon appears completely normal. What do you do? Yeah, because C. diff is a mucosal disease, you may not see obvious changes on the outside or the serosa of the colon. So this in this patient, you'd still want to do a subtotal colectomy, which would be a total abdominal colectomy with an endiliostomy. Yep. So many times a colon is going to look normal from the from uh, exterior. Um, like, like you say, C. diff is a mucosal pro process. So if you see that, you still proceed with your resection and endiliostomy. Perfect. Um, we didn't talk much about this, but it's a big topic. So let's jump into it real quick is a, a lower GI bleed. So Wu, walk me stepwise through your approach to a patient who presents with a, a lower GI bleed. All right. So first think about your ABCs. Uh, make sure you start resuscitation, have two large bore IVs, type and cross, transfuse if necessary, uh, admit the patient to ICU. Uh, then you want to move towards localizing the source. And uh, a lot of these are actually upper GI sources. So you want to start with an NG lavage and rule out an upper GI source. Uh, if that is clean, then you would move to a colonoscopy, uh, plus or minus angiography and or tagged RBC scan to localize. Yeah, there's different recommendations. Um, and I, I tried to find one good recommendation for colonoscopy versus angiography versus tagged red blood cell scan and what order to do those. It's really uh, institution specific. On, I think on the test, on the boards, I would go for colonoscopy definitely first. Um, after you do those things, you said, you obviously... You, you, you do all the resuscitation, you get your IV, type and cross, you know, all that. Like you say, first thing you have to do is, is rule out an upper GI source. But from once you do that, I think I would move to colonoscopy would be my, my first uh, stop. So let's say you do your colonoscopy. You don't really localize the source, but this bleeding stops. Most of these will actually stop spontaneously, but the patient then re-bleeds. What are you going to do in that situation? So for patients who are unstable or have an ongoing transfusion requirement, the answer would be a segmental colectomy if the bleeding source is localized on colonoscopy. Uh, 
if you have not localized, then you would do a total abdominal colectomy. Yeah, I, I think if the patient is is stable and you're able to, I think the first thing is going to do a second attempt of, of endoscopy. Again, you really want to try and localize these. Um, so if you're if you can allow, you can try your localization studies again if they rebleed, um, and then if you are able to localize the source, do a segmental colectomy. Um, if you still can't localize the source, then the answer is going to be a total abdominal colectomy. All right, and that wraps it up for colorectal part one.